Hi, and welcome to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 29. And now that we've got 29 episodes, you must think that we've covered all possible topics, right? Well, I'm not sure about that, but we've talked about a lot of things. If you're ever wondering how to find a topic that we may have discussed, fret not, my friends. We now have a brand new podcast index. That's right. You can go to agilecoffee.com slash podcast index, all one word, and sort by topic, sort by guest, sort by date, whatever it is you need to sort by. It lists all the topics right there, and you can click on the link, which will bring you right to the episode that the topic was played on. Let me know what you think about that. Uh, give me your feedback on Twitter, at Agile Coffee. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy a fresh brew. Agile. Welcome again to the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 29. My name is Victor Bonacci. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Agile Coffee. And I'm always looking to hear feedback on how this format works. So uh, so let me know. Don't be shy. Become part of the conversation. Um, I'm very excited because we're once again in Carlsbad, California, just north of San Diego uh, at the beautiful Cape Ray Hotel. Uh, right on the ocean, and I'm joined by uh, some very good friends now. Um, you've probably heard him on episode 28, Going Around the Room. I've got Jason Kearney here. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. Jason is on Twitter, at Jason Kearney. That's K-E-R-N-E-Y. Garrett Burunda. Good morning, Garrett. Good morning, Vic. Good to be here. Garrett can be reached uh, on LinkedIn, so we'll, we'll get that on the show notes as well. Zach Boniker. Good morning, Zach. Hi, Vic. Glad I made the cut to come back. Thanks. <laughs> Zach, as always, is on Twitter, right? Are you, You're a power user now I, since I, the last episode. User. Yeah, in, in the span since. I've actually, I'm number one on Twitter. It's fantastic. Zach Boniker, Z-A-C-H-B-O-N-A-K-E-R. And Dale Ellis. Good morning, Dale. Morning. Glad to be back. At the Digital Dale. Well, guys, we've got our cards sorted out. Let's just jump into them. The first card up is uh, notes from the Scrum Gathering in Phoenix. Uh, Dale was there. So, Dale, why don't you fill us in? What happened in Phoenix? Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was overall a great session. Uh, it was a very good conference. Uh, they had a good mix of curated content plus some things that they came up with uh, at kind of on the spur of the moment. They had the uh, first two days were all kind of standard uh, conference sessions. Uh, third day was all open space, so a, a lot of people got to contribute that way and set up their own sessions. Uh, I even uh, co-facilitated a session on, on using Scrum beyond uh, IT, uh, myself with another person. And, uh, yeah, it was a great conference. It was a, uh, it was a, uh, a good venue, a uh, really nice uh uh, Indian casino resort out there in the, in the Scottsdale area, so it wasn't too far from us here in, in the Los, greater Los Angeles area. Uh, pretty easy to get to. They, they had a, a very good lineup of speakers. Uh, uh, Mike Cohn uh, did the kickoff, which we, we talked briefly about in, uh, in the last episode of the podcast. So, yeah, it was, a, it was great. There was a lot of interesting uh, content there. And good all around. 
I've got questions, but I know Zach wants to take uh, umbrage with the greater Los. This is the greater San Diego area we're talking about. This is about the greater here. North County. If oh, that's <laughs> that's true. I forget we're, we're traveling down here. I'm so used to being in Orange <laughs> County. Um, so, yeah, thinking about our thinking back to our last podcast, we talked about the power of success. So, and everyone likes success. So, for you, Dale, what was what was the most success? Like, what was the best talk? What was the best thing that you got, and why? What was so great about it? Uh, I would say actually one of the best sessions I went to was a session on active learn on active listening, um, and uh, that was that was kind of one of the more general uh, soft skills coaching uh, approaches uh, and, and, and sessions that they had on that. Uh, I, I like that one because yeah, it was like an hour and fifteen minute session, I think. And they probably spent about half the time doing exercise. And the other half the time, uh, the leader of the session was imparting information and, and giving guidance. So I like that. You get a, a good brain dump. Um, and in general, I kind of, and this, is, this has to do with people's personal learning styles, but I kind of like brain dump conferences. I like when I'm going somewhere and paying a lot of money. To, to sit in a conference, I, 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 I want to be like furiously taking notes um, and, and, and feeling that I'm, I'm getting out of it. That's how I learn. I think the last um, big brain dump conference I went to, if you want to call it that, that sounds like a catchy term for it, right, was uh, Agile 2013, the one that was in Tennessee. And, um, and I loved it because of the same fact. You can go there and you can kind of be a participant and just kind of get all this knowledge coming at you. Um, for the last few years, though, I've been more in the open space uh, areas where we go to the Agile Opens or the coach camps or whatever, which are much more participatory, right? So um, it's been a while that I've been to a, a gathering or a big conference, so so I'm really, now that you're telling me about it, I'm kind of like pining for those days. I might want to spend, drop down some dough and, and go to one of those um, coming up. We have... Um, the Agile Alliance is doing Agile 2015. That's in the D.C. area coming up in, I want to say, October, September, October, something like that. Um, it's at the Gaylord National, too, which is a pretty pretty nice place to be at a convention. Yeah. yeah. And the other, the other good thing was, in addition to having regular sessions and the full day of open space, they also had on, I believe it was the, the second day, they started it off with Pecha Kucha presentations and then finished it off with what what they were calling ignite presentations it really wasn't ignite they were more like a series of maybe five or, or six talks the five or six presentations that were limited to uh 10 minutes in length i think is a maximum but those and both of those things were were highly valuable i got some really good little small golden nuggets out of out of uh, those those rapid fire presentations, yeah, sounds like a great variety. So you not only got your your kind of tracks and your people at the front of the room kind of talking about whatever their specialty is, and then you've got your open space, which I haven't seen mixed into a big conference before, so that's great. Um, and then your ignite and your pitcha pitcha uh, going on. Um, there's a lot that you can pick and choose from. Um, I was going to ask. Oh, first I was going to plug my own pitcha pitcha, so I'll, I'll put a link to that. Uh, on the on the show notes, I did a lean coffee pechacucha, but uh, I was going to ask if it was really focused because it was a Scrum gathering on Scrum, or if there were any kind of other flavors of Agile that were uh, discussed as well. And then also the other question that I think we asked before we started recording was, what's the audience like? Was it mostly um, Scrum masters and people in management of Scrum, or were there developers there? Uh, were there other executives? 
could you tell? Well, first, first question, was, were there things other than Scrum there? Right. Yes, the, it was definitely Scrum-focused, but there were presentations about things outside of Scrum. I can remember somebody had a session on Kanban. It was either one of the Pecha Kucha or one of the Ignite presentations was on Kanban. Uh, there were at least a couple of presentations on the SAFE framework. Um, there, uh, and I would say there were a fairly high number of presentations, uh, either set, either planned sessions or the open space things that had to do with generalized coaching kind of soft skill things that could have been applied to any kind of an agile framework. Uh, the composition of the attendees, I would say the vast majority of them were in some kind of a a team leadership kind of a role, either scrum masters, sometimes IT managers, that sort of a thing. I I, I don't know what the percentage breakdown was, but I would say the vast majority of people were, were in that kind of a thing. Not so many developers, although, or, and I should, I should, say maybe not so many people that are currently doing development. There were an awful lot of people there who, even though they were in leadership roles, came from developer backgrounds. Cool. Any other key takeaways you want to share from uh, Scrum Gathering? That was it. Um, just wanted to give a, a generalized report on it. I thought it was it was definitely worthwhile. Uh, you know, they've got three of them now around the world. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's the... Honestly, if it's the kind of thing where it's it's worth traveling across the planet for, um, going you know a twelve hour flight, but you know they've got one in one in the Americas, one in Europe, and one in Asia now. Yeah. And if you're in one of those continents and you're involved in agile, especially Scrum, uh, it's definitely worthwhile. Yeah. Coaches clinics too. I've seen them pop up at at those conferences. Yes, right. yeah. Um, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. The coaches clinic. I, I uh, uh, got some assistance uh, right. in that myself, and they had this like on each given day of the conference. I think they quoted that they they had like over 150 people get assistance from coaches yeah. uh, each day of the conference. Yeah. So that was successful. All right, our next card says, is product owner the only agile product management model? Is this yours, Zach? Yeah, this was mine. <clears throat> so it, it never ceases to amaze me when companies and, and various people who are trying out you know, agile and it's right away, it's, well, okay, and here are our product owners. Go, okay, well, are, are we using Scrum? Is that, well, no, we're still, there seems to be this assumption that product owner is like an agile related role. Right, mm. and I get it. It's a scrum role, and it's defined to do something specific. And so we'll go out and we'll see organizations that you know are struggling because they don't have the right people to really be what a product owner says Scrum needs to be. And we'll get people like former project managers, business analysts who are highly technical, trying to play that role and struggling with it. So my question really is: is what do you think about that? I mean, is that the right way to do it? Is to drive your product strategy towards having that single, like the mini CEO of the team, the mini CEO of the product driving it for the team? Are there other models? You know, what how what what, what do you think about you know product management, product strategy when it comes to an agile transformation or even a business that is you know practicing agile? Okay, so I'll jump in. I think that for our for our group, what we end up doing is we we do have product owners, but they're not your typical product owners. These are the people who have the most interest in using the product. Uh, and for us, it's really helpful to have a single point of contact uh, for when we have a question or we need to get something resolved that we can just simply filter that through. 
And then from there, what will end up happening is we'll get, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, then this, you know, we need to talk to so-and-so. I'm like, okay, put them on the line. And we'll actually build relationships with their whole team. But having a single point to go to first in order to build that relationship has been, fun, it's been very important to us. So, yeah, Zach, I've worked in a bunch of different models using both product owners, product managers um, as well. And I think it can work in different ways. So I've certainly worked with teams where the product owner is a, someone that is there on a daily occurrence that you interact with. You go and you ask questions and you change you know, your implementation based on the feedback that you get. But I've also worked with product managers who basically come in at the beginning of a sprint um, or a period of time. It doesn't have to be a sprint. It doesn't have to be scrum necessarily. And they basically say, hey, guys, this is where we're going. Go. And then they'll come back at the end, basically to give direction in the beginning and then to uh, facilitate communication with stakeholders. And that's the extent of their role. Um, I, Jason, I can't remember the quote you gave me earlier, but something about developers are actually businessmen who don't know it. Uh, and I think that's incredibly true that every line of code that a developer writes really is a business decision. And if you build the confidence in the team, um, if the product manager or product owner gives them that power, that understanding, uh, and that trust that they really can drive fantastic products. So I, I don't think you necessarily have to have that mini CEO who's directing a lot. Um, I, I think you can have more of a, a hands-off product type person who gives general direction and empowers the team to drive towards, you know, a valuable end. Yeah, I've worked in multi-team uh, environments where the te- each team was dealing with somebody who traditionally may have been defined as an as a business analyst, uh, and and they weren't really a, a true product owner. They didn't have that that huge overarching uh, interest in the product or or. Uh, information about the marketing data on the product and what was driving that sort of thing. They 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 understood very well what needed to be build built, uh, and could communicate that to the team, and that also works. So that's a bit of my my question in exploring this topic: <clears throat> is getting away from trying to fill a position and instead needing certain things to enable our success. I mean, when I think of in Scrum, you have the product owner that that can motivate and engage the team to to establish purpose can organize and prioritize the backlog to provide the clarity of the work, right? And to, you know, facilitate relationships throughout the organization and the customer base to get closer, more closely connected to the team to just really improve the software in general, right? I mean, Jason, as a developer, you know, I mean, if you know the inside and out of your user, it's going to help you be able to, you know, delight them and and deliver great features. Most definitely. So in your case, Dale, you talked about you had a business analyst that, didn't really care so much about the end product, but was really clear on what needed to be built and can and could, um, you know, describe that to the team. Is that what we're seeking? I mean, is, was, do you think that that's effective? Is that a good model for an agile approach to building software? You know, is it so? Do we need to have that product owner as that single source that that knows the customers inside and out? Like, what other models can we do it? What if we start coming up with ten business units that all want software? And we have a single product owner. Then how are we having to prioritize? How, how can we how can we solve the problem? Well, in the in the environment that I'm working in now, we have uh, each team works with multiple product owners. Actually, now they're 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 not product owners in the traditional sense. They are more like 
Well, they're kind of a mixture. I can't say that they're, they're I was going to say that they're just like, they're, they're like, an, they're more like analysts or subject matter experts. They are ex, they are, they know their section of the website that they're working on very well or the revenue stream that they're trying to produce and what the modifications that they're trying to make. But the, the team in the course of the sprint may have three, you know, each may have a couple of stories from each of maybe three different quote, product owners, unquote. Um, prioritization is handled by a uh, kind of a committee, and so the, the, the team knows what stories they're supposed to work on in, in what order, but uh, those, those product owners, the multiple ones that they work with, each know their section of the site. They understand the motivation behind it. They understand how much money that this new feature is going to make or, or how much money it's going to save. Uh, so they're able to, to work that way. I, I don't, I can't highly recommend that kind of a situation because it's a, just a, uh, it can sometimes be a nightmare to coordinate. Yeah. Those are, are kind of like team members that are now matrixed, um, and have other demands placed on them that are outside the team and they, they are not always available as much as you'd like them to be. Uh, but it's, it, it's, you know, it's somewhat workable that, that can be shared. Yeah, I was going to mention that we're um, where I'm at now, uh, kind of going through another crisis of project, uh, I'm sorry, product management. Uh, what is the role there? What is the department under marketing looking like? And um, a lot of the guys went and got training from, I think it was pragmatic marketing or something like that. Um, they've been developing personas, and I think that was really key for us is in developing personas and communicating who each of these personas represent for the end users and mid-tier users um, helps go a long way in getting the developers to understand the whys of, of what they're doing. So um, by having a persona of, of, a, of an end user, um, we, can, we can answer the questions ourselves or go right to the BSA if the product owner or the product manager isn't around. Now it's the product manager's job, we don't call them product owners anymore, uh, product manager's job to be out in the field and be either testing what the developers deliver or just gathering more data from customers and then updating our our BSAs and our engineers on on kind of what the personas are, how they're changing, if they're changing, and what they're looking for. So it's it's been a blend of kind of like like you said, Dale, kind of a having a committee of people kind of feeding information from a product side, from a customer side, into into this filter of, of what's actually like personas on the wall and posters and then having um, you know our, our developers asking direct questions to the product guys when they're around and when they're not letting the, the BSAs kind of in the middle kind of being that interface. So one of the things I want to say is that one of the important things in my opinion that you need to have in order to transform this role from being the traditional mini CEO is really getting everybody focused on maximizing the work not done. You know, on everything, not just development, but on, you know, the product backlog, on, you know, we, what we do is when we work on something for a group, we work on a very small feature set, try to get delivered quickly, we get everybody in the room, talk about it, and we say, okay, choose one thing, and we'll work on that. And then if they really have a lot of ideas they need to capture down, write them on index cards, and we'll put them, we'll put them in a list, and you can... You know, you can decide next time if you want these to be something that you do or something else. And really, really focusing on not doing any work that
that doesn't need to be done. Try to maximize what you don't do. Keep everybody focused in the now, and then the role transforms considerably. Uh, do you guys think that in whatever model we're using to drive our product strategy, that we can be or that we are being agile if the actual end user of what the team is to deliver isn't interacting with the team? I, I say no. <laughs> that's my quick answer, but I'll, I'll defer. Yeah, I'd have to say no as well. I mean, that's really where you derive your direction from, is from that end user, so for the people who are using the software. Um, one of the things I wanted to make a point to about, however, is transparency in roles. So no matter what role the people are playing, they're all okay, as long as you're transparent about it. You define it up front and people understand what that role is and how to work with them. And I think that's the most important part of it is don't say you're going to do one thing and give the people all of the responsibilities of that role if they're not getting those responsibilities. Now, the classic one is a product owner. Hey, you're the pro you own the product when we all know that they don't own the product, um, that they're basically just translating. And they're doing a great job. They're doing an important job, but they don't get to make the P&L type decisions. So as long as you're transparent about what it is role that product person is playing, I think the team can be successful. Yeah, I would definitely agree. The person needs to have ownership if they're going to be the owner. The last thing I want to say, though, in regards to the question of can you uh, be successful if you're not interacting with your customer on a regular basis directly, there's definitely different ways to interact with them. I mean, you look at companies like Google, how do they interact with their end customer? You know, they do it by monitoring what their end customer does and turning that into code. Now, uh, so I haven't been in that situation, but I think about it because I could always, you know, things change. You never know where you're going to end up, end up being. And for anyone who's listening here that is in a situation where they're building a product for uh, some external company, you know, to sell an off-the-shelf product, you know, you have to figure out how to build that interaction back in. Just building on top of that, you know, I think that comes back to lean methodologies, right? Deliver something do an A-B test, get the feedback, and then, you know, change up. And I think that's a great way to go. And I think that's a great point that you bring up, that there are different ways to interact with that stakeholder or with that end user, and that we should make an extra effort to find those ways and find out which one works best for your organization. Yeah. I, in, my, in my experiences, you know, in the product owner role, I've, I've sometimes thought to myself that um, I want to, if you're using Scrum, that's great. Um, and product owner's fine. It's defined that way. But if we're not, and we're just trying to put together exactly the things you're talking about, engagement with the people building the software and the people using the software, the relationships to, to, to understand you know, what the priority should be, um, product leader has always kind of felt better to me. You're kind of leading a bunch of people and driving and guiding them or you know, like a product mentor or something, you know, I mean, something, the owner to me has always felt like, oh, okay, it makes sense with the business. Okay. We'll make that person. It's the product owner and the owner is responsible for the, the, the success. And if it goes wrong, it's that person's fault. And you know, it's kind of, feels like the leader, the guide, you know, like kind of anyways, <laughs> product midwife. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, Jason, last Just word on it. Real quick quote comment, and that is, I actually really love the direction it goes as a believer in the power of BDD of changing the changing the way we phrase things in order to get better understanding. I love the idea of just simply changing the phrase. 
Great. Um, what do you think? Use the hashtag TellAgileCoffee. Uh, become part of the conversation with us and uh, let us know what um, what you think about the role of the product owner. Is there another model uh, in managing products? Our next topic, um, whose is this? Is this, uh, this is actually mine. This is yours, Garrett. Okay, so uh, with whom do Agile principles take root? So, yeah, you know, uh, having been a consultant for a while now um, and before my consultant days being – you know, an, an executive trying to lead agile transformations in both big companies as well as startups. Um, I found two types of people who really gravitate towards agile principles. The first person is newbies, people as close to out of college as possible um, that, you know, just don't have that much experience in general, who are not tied to a particular way of doing things. They're open to influence and they see the potential in being agile. Um, and they're easy to mentor. Um, they find different ways on how to make it work. They challenge you. And I find it incredibly rewarding. And I find working with those people are highly successful in driving their products. Um, the other group of people that I've worked with who really gravitate towards Agile are people who have nothing to lose. People who have been in position forever or who are so frustrated with the way things are working in their organization. They're like, yeah, I'll try anything to try it and make it better. And when I've engaged those people and say, hey, I have a tool just here. Let me give you a few of these tools and see if they work. They get really excited about the opportunity. And just, I think, part of that excitement builds momentum, and the momentum allows them to create organizational change. So, you know, I wanted to reach out to you guys and see, does that ring true with you? Do you find the same thing? Do you find other groups of people who are very excited and who take on Agile principles and make them work? Yeah, I, I agree. I've, I've witnessed the same kind of a thing. Um, people who've been in the industry for a long period of time, particularly people who have, have seen the pain of waterfall, um, some of them, uh, are, are open to the new idea. They, they want to alleviate the pain, uh, in that. And the people who are, who are just out of college because maybe they've been introduced in their classes now, just starting now, uh, about, uh, agile approaches. Um, but people who've been in the industry maybe a few years, like under 10 or something like that, and haven't used Agile before, in some cases they think it's they're, – they're, they're the ones who are sometimes more stuck in their ways. Uh, I've been doing this for a few years now. I know the right way to do it. This is the way it's supposed to be done. My, and they're, they're, you know, they're – their professors in college or whatever still they were still teaching them waterfall when they went through. So uh, yeah, the 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 opposite ends of the spectrum are where I find that you get the most movement. I immediately think of well because I tend to be more behavioral, psychological, and thinking about these sort of things. I, I think of you know Lalu's reinventing organizations and, and building the um, you know the Graves's Claire Graves's color coded scale you know on on people's development, you know, where they're at, what elevation they're operating from. So like Garrett, in your example, people fresh out of college are, are probably going to be very tuned in immediately to a hierarchical, at least business people, right? Thinking from their business school and their education that, oh yes, these got these big corporations and there's the CEO and it trickles down the hierarchy and I need to get in and move them up the hierarchy, right? So they're in that amber, that, you know, the, the, the hierarchical thought process and how those people are changed is through a respected authority. So pretty easy as somebody coming in out of college and Garrett, if you're, you know, their boss to be that respected authority and to give them an idea and 
you can change them pretty rapidly. So that's a good place for somebody to be amber, less if they've had a lot of experience in the hierarchy. Um, and then people who are really just beat down and, and, and frustrated, um, well, that would be that one progression up in the orange, the performance type of mentality. And for them, they're dissatisfied with the performance. They know it could be better and they're looking for something better, right? And so they're going to you know, really respond to that. So, yeah, I, I, I think of, you know, who, how do you transform people? You know, who, how, how do these principles take place? I think um, they can take place across a variety of different individuals, but understanding where they're at and what changes them is how you introduce the principles to them for it to take root. I think anyone can adopt Agile principles. We just have to frame it in a way that resonates with them based on where, you know, developmentally they're at, what makes sense to them. I think that's a great point because I've introduced the same principles to a number of people in the same organization and it takes root with some and doesn't take root with others. And perhaps it is, you know, a matter of dividing the message and making and customizing it to each one of those groups so that it takes root better. Um, the other side of the coin here is people that I traditionally find it not taking root with are people who have been moderately successful, who are doing a good job because they found safety in doing the good job. Why am I going to change it? And I have the conversation. I'm like, yes, you're doing a good job. But wouldn't you like to do a great job? Wouldn't you like to really change things up? And their answer is no, I'm doing a good job. Why would I want to change things? So, you know, coming back to culture, you know, what kind of culture is your organization in? Is it a culture that really wants to push the bounds and wants to go for something great? Or is it a culture that, hey, we're doing good enough, you know? So if you look at psychology, the greatest fear in the U.S. isn't public speaking. It's actually the second greatest. The greatest fear is loss of control. And so people who are in that moderate state feel like they have control. If you ask them to change, you're asking them to give up that control. And so we got you know, think, think about that. It's, it's a very powerful state because you're hitting right in a nerve that most people in America say is their greatest fear. <laughs> the psychological side of that then is, okay, so if people are in a, a state of feeling like they you know, are in control, um, what you can do is, and I, I guess this is how I would approach it, um, if this is because I, I don't, it doesn't surprise me, Jason, that that's the number one um, fear, right? Because I think that's probably the mindset of the majority of, I guess, our corporate, you know, managers, right? Where they're in a place of safety, they feel good about what they can control, they're compensated well, and and that and they worked hard to get there. Why would they want to risk something that could break that? Um, so we have to slowly create the environment around them to um, feel like a an experiment that doesn't have a big threat of loss could give them a bump up in performance, right? And if we can run that safe, short and short, by the way, that short, safe experiment, we can see, did we perform better? Then over that one month period, now I'm creating the incentive because those people are also performance-based. They're, they're in a position of control and safety because their performance is acceptable. But if they could, hey, without threat to themselves, do better, they'll do it because they'll know they're going to get a bonus or some performance, you know, or even get promoted. Right. Did that make sense? Did that shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, systems dynamics. Um, human beings. Uh, once you get more than one of them <laughs> in a room together, you're gonna have some complex systems going on, right. and you cannot predict. You cannot. You have to give up all uh, all hope of control. There, there's that's that's a myth, <laughs> right? That's 
Got to be blown away. And conversely, you know, relative to what Zach had to say about showing people an opportunity to improve with little risk, um, the other side is pandering or reaching out to the people who really have nothing to lose, who are in a bad situation. Hey, guys, what do you got to lose? And they're like, you're right. Let's go for it. Um, that was very much where I found myself when I was started out at Symantec with the Macintosh team. Literally, no one cared about the Macintosh team. We weren't bringing in enough revenue. Um, and I said, hey, guys, let's change things up. Let's really change our culture here and be something way different than what the company's used to. Um, and the team was essentially, eh, yeah, you're right. Well, let's do it. Uh, the, the end result, as we started changing the culture, and I was just in charge of QA, but it really caught fire with the product team as well. And the developers are like, you know, why not? They didn't say we couldn't do this. Um, and the quick story, we started out when I was there, I think we had two products. And one of the questions that came up is, well, why do we only have two products? The PC side of the house has five products. What if we started adding products? Well, no, we can't do that. Well, why not? I mean, who's going to stop us? No one's paying attention to us anyway. Let's just do it. And we are able to do you know, on the back of an envelope that the difference between having two products and having four products was about one person's time over the course of a year. Well, we get, went ahead and we developed two new products and we went from $15 million in revenue to $45 million in revenue in a 24 month span. And it literally was, well, no one's watching this. Why don't we do this? And you can get people excited. Um, so I would, I would tell the people listening again, Look for all these different opportunities. Look for opportunities where people, you know, could benefit from taking a big swing at the fences. And for those opportunities where, hey, you know what? Let me give you an opportunity to do better in a safe environment. And I think in all of these examples, um, you really can push your organizations forward. There's a, a quote from Donald Trump that, hey, if, if you're in that place where everything is just nobody's watching you, which is which is a whole other sad thing. But, um, you know, the quote I love um, kind of made me think of your story right there, Garrett, was um, he said, if you're going to be thinking anyway, you might as well think big. So I like that one. Definitely. All right. That brings us to the end of this topic. We have one final topic today, and that is intentional practice. So I bring this up because as a developer, I really believe in intentional practice. There's these things called code katas, which are simple problems that you solve repeatedly multiple different different ways for the intense purpose of practicing. It's code you throw away when you're done. Um, and there's some benefits you get out of this. You practice one a number of different ways. You suddenly have a really deep domain knowledge of a simple problem. And then when you want to learn something else, you can take that domain problem that you have the deep knowledge of and apply whatever it is you're trying to learn to that domain. And then the only thing you're focusing on is the thing you're trying to learn. This is very valuable. And as I started looking out, you know, um, I would like to get involved in coaching. I enjoy sharing what I know. And so I haven't really seen any way to intentionally practice coaching or, you know, product ownering or, you know, anything else we do. The one thing that was brought up uh, last time was, you know, with, with the active listening was uh, earlier, earlier uh, and you know, you actually did practices on that. And I thought that was kind of cool because that's some, that's one of the soft skills that we need to actively practice. And so, are there other things that you guys know of to practice these very important skills that we're all trying to learn? So, the two examples I have just right off the bat 
Um, one is using a Kanban board in your personal life. Um, I've used this with my son a whole bunch of times, saying, hey, here's all the things we have to do this weekend. Let's put them up on a board with stickies, and let's move them through the workflow. And it's, you know, it's a great opportunity to practice, you know, an agile value, agile principles in your day-to-day life, even with people, you know, who are brand new to the concept. And I think it really has an impact. Um, the other one, and I think, Zach, you've had a bunch of practice of this, is actually giving coaching to organizations who can't pay for it, for nonprofits and other groups who just want to learn about Agile um, but aren't in a position to hire a coach to come in. And I think that's another great way to do it is to engage people who do need the help, who are motivated and have interest but may not have you know the opportunity to bring you on as full-time. Yeah, year, years ago, that's exactly how I started. So – you know, I was working full time, going to business school back then, and, and and getting exposed to agile and saying, "God, this is really resonating with me." I didn't at that time where I was working have the opportunity where I could directly apply it. I was trying to create it through some influence, but I wasn't able to practice it. Well, I, you know, I just kind of said, um, I, the whole Tobias Meyer idea with needing help is, you know, surrender to the problem. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to define it. I need that and just start shutting out to lots of people. And I went to some startup groups and some meetup groups and said, here's the deal. This is what I believe in. This is what I'm practicing. Can I practice with you? It's free. It will cost you nothing. It is risk-free. And at worst, nothing happens. And at best, I make your business hugely successful. Okay, what do you got? What do you got, kid? What do you got? You know. So uh, that was a great way to do it is just to get out there, you know, expose your problem and ask to see if anyone wants to invite invite dialogue on it. Um, Startups. Nonprofits, these are great places, especially like you can go on Kickstarter. Look at what it's out there on Kickstarter and look at all those projects and find one of interest and just reach out to them and say, hey, can, how are you going to do it? Can I, uh, it's free? Can I come out there and talk with you and just, you know, see what you can get out of it? It was, it was really, really helpful for me. Yeah, making it clear that you're doing it for, for your own learning uh, and, and there's no risk then. They're not trying to like sell them on it, but. In yeah. the end, you are. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I get it, right? Because yeah. you cause you look like an amateur. But, you know, sometimes it's okay to say, you know, there's fake it till you make it. You know, maybe. But sometimes I'm fine with being completely vulnerable because what do I learn from it too? Say, hey, I'm trying to grow this. I won't hurt your company. And at best, we can build a relationship and who knows. I volunteered um, at the local co-working space to come in and talk about Scrum and Kanban. And they are like, yeah, come on in. And I didn't ask for anything and they didn't offer anything. But it was fun just to have that practice, that intentional practice of, of what is it, the message that I'm trying to share. And when I scan the room and see blank faces, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to react? Or if I see some engagement, some like twinkling eyes, then I'm like, okay, I need to build on that. My my last piece of advice here on this kind of the intentional practice idea um, is, you know, Jason, you're, you're not, I mean, you are connected here in the agile community. You've got access to a wonderful group of people, right? Through our, listeners on this podcast even, um, reach out to them and say, could you do me a favor? I'm going to start a little distro, right? That when you and your engagement and you work with people and you have a problem, would you mind creating the problem for me? And I, I was lucky to have a few people that did this for me as I started practicing. State the problem that you solved in the workplace and just email it to me. Give me some time to think about it and let me shoot it off to everyone, right? So that you can continue to just assess what, hey, this is how I would have handled the problem. And then you can get the people who actually handle the problem say, huh, good idea. Or, well, hey, this is how I would have got. Just a way to invite dialogue, you know? I, what's, what's amazing is that, you know, when you really want help, it's amazing how powerful it is to go to people and say, be my teacher. Everyone loves to be a teacher. 
right? And if I can feel like I'm really helping you, oh, I'm engaged. I'm there. And if you say this really matters to me, I'm happy to help you. Awesome. Thank you. I think doing this and just participating in lean coffees in general is intentional practice. Uh, join a coaching circle, um, even if you've never coached before. Um, you know, try coaching someone else and have them coach you and maybe have a third person just listening to give feedback on the engagement. That's that's great practice as well. Um, the Kanban board that Garrett mentioned, perfect. Yeah. Do you use one at home also? Uh, is that what you're saying? You use a personal Kanban board for yourself or with yeah, your family? A, or what? I use a personal Kanban board myself. I actually use the Trello tool that Zach can introduce me to. I think it's a great way to keep on top of all the things happening in my life. Um, and, you know, if you're more active managing your life and you're getting experience doing that, it certainly helps you in your practice as well as you're helping organizations manage their work. Any final thoughts, guys? Um, real quick, Jason, tell me on your your use of intentional practice at Hunter, how would you propose, you know, other other teams experiment with this idea? If they've never done it before, how, how could I get some of my teams to start trying what you're doing? I would propose a very simple problem. Solve a tic-tac-toe board or uh, bowling. So not even code-related. Well, start with the concept of what it is and then say, take an hour. Give them an hour. Say, look, we're going to throw the code away when we're done. Do whatever you want. Solve it. Uh, give me some rudimentary UI and just show, show me that it works. You know? And then, you know, if, and give a concrete example initially. Like, you know, here's a tic-tac-toe board, X in the left-hand corner, O in the center, and X in the right-hand middle square. You know, show, show me, build something that can tell me whether or not that game is who won <laughs> or if it's done. Cool. And just let it go for an hour and just, you know, and you know, do that do it periodically. Uh, at Hunter, we, we do this every morning for one hour. So after, in that example of tic-tac-toe, tic-tac-toe board after it was solved would you go back and tackle the same problem again and ask them to solve it a different way is that kind of what well, the intention yeah so with within the hour you would do as many uh, concrete got it solutions as possible in one sitting so, so you're working with one solution just trying to fill it out got it got it so come up with as many different ways ideas solutions that you can come up with in an hour right but 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 you're you're solving them all in the same way and then get used to that first you know maybe do that a couple of days and then once you kind of get used to solving it that way, change it a little bit. You know, say, can we make this more solid? Uh, going to um, uh, Bob Martin's solid principles. Yeah. Or, you know, can we make this more procedural? How does it look if we do that? You know, ask questions like that and then solve it that way a couple of times. It's a really, really interesting idea. One hour, <laughs> one hour every day, is that just with the mob or is that across uh, everyone? Or? Just with the mob. We do it one one hour every day, and then an additional two hours at the end of Friday. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of percentage of time during the week. Yep. Uh, but we, because of that, we have a substantial, deep understanding of the technologies in which we're using that comes forward and allows us to produce quality code. Yeah, it goes, goes back to aligning your actions. So do you have? No, oh, no. Go, go ahead, Dale. So do you have guidelines about how that that what? The way in which they are using maybe a particular JavaScript framework is one that you're using already or that? Or there's some kind of guidelines about that? No, it changes up from day to day. Sometimes we don't even do the kata. Sometimes we're like, you know, hey, we heard about this cool technology. Can we just download it and try it for an hour? Oh, okay. And, 
because of that, we it's kind of interesting. We find new technologies we want to use, and we find more importantly new technologies we don't want to use. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're aligning the fact that you're doing a lot of knowledge work, so you're increasing your knowledge, right? And it's that well, that's so much time lost programming, right? But kind of like, can we afford to do it? And and if we're talking about building our knowledge workers' ability to gain knowledge, you can't afford not to do that, right? So exactly. That's um. I'm pretty. I'm pretty interested in this idea i'll probably have to talk with you a little bit more after this podcast but that's, that sounds really really fascinating to me and if anyone else out there listening wants to find out more hit jason up on twitter at jason kearney that's k-e-r-n-e-y uh, i want to thank all of our guests here garrett borunda jason kearney zach boniker dale ellis my name is victor bonacci uh, reach out to us using the hashtag tell agile coffee become part of the conversation and let us know if there's any intentional practices that we missed Anything else that we can add on? Um, the show notes for this episode are on agilecoffee.com slash episode 29. Check it out for links to any of the books or people that we've talked about. Uh, that about wraps it up for today, but we thank you for joining us and look forward to talking to you later. Bye-bye. Agile Coffee.